Romans 6, 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore we have been buried with Him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with Him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with Him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all, but the life that He lives, He lives to God." Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And I'll pray. Lord, it is just again such a, a great privilege to be able to gather together in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can gather without fear and have complete freedom. Um, and I thank you, God, that, that our peace and our safety is in you. It's not in man, it's not in government. And we pray that we would just have our inner man strengthened, God, um, through the things that we'll be looking at today, and that you would um, continue to have your rightful place as Lord God in each of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, if you're just um, new to us, joining us, um, I've been for the last few weeks working through the Bernie Bible Church Statement of Faith. And we're on Article 7 today. And Article 7, as you'll see on the screen behind me, is about what we call the church ordinances. And those ordinances being the Lord's Supper and baptism. And so it says, We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances to be observed by the church during the present age. They are, however, not to be regarded as means of salvation. We believe immersion is, to the, is the mode of baptism which we consider best to demonstrate what, God occurs, what occurs spiritually at the moment of salvation. This ordinance is to be administered only after salvation is experienced. Um, it's easy to read too much into things. And that has um, often historically been the case when it comes to the church ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. I came into my office one morning and I didn't know what to make of what I found. As I looked at my door, there was a perfect eye hole that had been punctured into my door, right at eye level. And I thought, well, that's curious. I didn't ask anybody for a peephole in my door. And then I opened up my office door to find wood shavings on the floor. And I'm thinking, what has happened? And so I did a little um, deductive reasoning and I realized there is a box of arrows and, and a bow in the office lounge. 
And those arrows look to be about the right diameter for the hole that is in my door. And so putting two and two together, I went over to the classroom and I said, I really would like to know who shot my door. And everybody just laughed. And, you know, and so one person came forward, a girl. And, <laughs> and I, I said, it, it, am I deducting this correctly that you shot my door with an arrow? And she says, you have rightly concluded. And I go, is there a message here that you're trying to get, a, get across to me? Do I need to be worried about something? Oh, no. She said, I just was in the office lounge, and I saw the arrows. I saw the, bo- the bow. I saw a long hallway with a semi-permeable object at the end, and I thought, why not? <coughs> okay. I now have a bulletproof door for my office. <laughs> this morning, I walked out of the house getting ready to get the car out of the garage and stretched out on my driveway was a massive old porcupine. And I'm also thinking, has someone left me a message? <laughs> Just this dead porcupine stretched out on my driveway. And so I can think, one, it's just old and it died of natural causes on my driveway. Or two, the students have been up to something think number two is the more likely option there. Now, funny stories, but when it comes to these things, baptism and the Lord's Supper, it really is, if you know anything about church history, it's not so funny. Because there have been church traditions, principally the Catholic Church, that has taken these things so seriously, and that's not quite the right word, to such an extreme that they killed many people for saying what I'm going to say today. And so we'll see this, we'll work through it, and then what they've done is they've taken these two ordinances and say they mean much, much more than I believe what the Bible is saying and what we believe here at Bernie Bible Church. So first we have to start out with the statement, we believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances. And that's a significant statement. It's saying what we don't believe. We don't believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are sacraments. That's what the Catholic Church would call them. An ordinance is simply something that has been ordained by God to be observed by the church. And we believe that there are only two in Bernie Bible Church. Some Protestant churches believe there is a third and that being foot washing. And they take that from John 13, where Jesus washed the disciples' feet, and he says that you are, I've left you an example that what I have done to you, you should do to one another. And so on that basis, there are a few churches. Church of God is one that I'm familiar with because Patsy's home church in Pennsylvania is a church of God, and they consider foot washing to be a church ordinance that is to be observed. We don't believe that at Bernie Bible, and most Protestant churches do not add foot washing. We believe that ordinances are determined by three things. One, Jesus said, do it. Second, the apostles said, do it. And third, the early church did it. 
So though we could perhaps say that Jesus said three ordinances, we don't find any place in Scripture that I'm aware of that the, that the apostles were telling the churches to practice foot washing. And we don't find that the early church was practicing this on a regular basis as far as I know. So an ordinance is simply something that God has ordained that we do. Sacrament, totally different. A sacrament is a means for getting God's grace. And the Catholic Church lists seven sacraments, those being baptism, confirmation, which you go through at about 12 years old, communion, confession, marriage, holy orders, which would be becoming a priest, and the anointing of the sick or last rites. So seven sacraments. Obviously, no one person can practice all seven because one is marriage and the other is holy orders, which is being a priest, and priests are not married. So the best you could do would be to practice six of the seven. But the thing is, the Catholic Church says that these sacraments, and I'm quoting here from the Catechism, are efficacious signs of grace instituted by Christ and entrusted to the church, now get this, by which divine life is dispensed to us. So you know God's life by practicing the sacraments. They would go on to say that they are ways to experience God's grace and that the only way to know God's grace is through the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, because they are the depository of God's grace. So you can't know God's grace except through the Roman Catholic Church and as you observe these sacraments, you will experience God's grace. Now, we've all been at weddings. We've been at baptisms. We observe communion once a month. And I think most of us would say that with those three things, we have seen great joy. It, we feel unworthy to take the Lord's Supper, but at the same time, there is a deep sense of joy that we, can, that we can acknowledge what Christ has done for us. When you, if you've ever been baptized with water or ever been to a baptism, you know it's a time of great joy. And the same is true for a wedding. But I think, personally, what the Catholic Church has done is they've taken what we all experience, joy, when we do this, and say that is an indication that God's grace comes through these things. I think it's just more simple to say, anytime you obey God in anything, you are going to know the joy of God. And it's not about the act itself, it's about the obedience in faith. And that is always going to bring joy. That old song um, that says, what now just went blank. Um, trust and obey, for there's no other way. To be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey, right? And so we know the joy of the Lord by simply trusting God and obeying God. It's not the sacraments in themselves. It's the faith obedience that brings about the joy. The Catholic Catechism also says the church affirms that for, for believers, the sacraments of the new covenant are necessary for salvation. That's a pretty big statement necessary for salvation. 
We don't believe that. We believe that these are ordinances, that these are symbols of what God has accomplished on our behalf. That doesn't mean they are not significant, but we don't believe they are means of grace because that would make grace by what we do. You have to do something to receive the grace of God. And by definition, the grace of God is what? Free. It is free. It is not I have to do something to get God's grace. God is full of grace, full of mercy, and He is what He is to all people we simply receive of His grace. So the Bible, by contrast, tells us that grace is not given through outward symbols and no ritual is necessary for salvation. Grace is the blessing of God freely given to the undeserving. And by the way, I really overprepared for today. Um, that's my obsessive compulsiveness coming out. I have twice the notes that I would normally have. You don't have anything else to do today, so... <laughs> I'm going to try to work through a lot faster than what my notes would, would permit. But I will say, tremendous resource that I've just in the last few months been making a um, good advantage of, and it's that website, gotquestions.org. Great stuff. And so it's helped me a lot. So I like simple, to-the-point stuff. So anyway, so again, we say... Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances and that they are to be observed by the church during the present time. I'm going to come back to some of these things. We're going to keep moving around a little bit. So first of all, let me just camp out for a short time on the Lord's Supper. And then we'll come back to baptism because that's the one that we can have a lot of debate about. The Lord's Supper, going back to the Catholics. They look at the Lord's Supper, which they call the Eucharist, and they believe that when an ordained Roman Catholic priest administers the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, that something miraculous happens. They believe that literal wine becomes the literal blood of Jesus, not figurative. And that that piece of bread becomes the literal flesh of Christ. That it is a miracle that takes place at the hands of an ordained Roman Catholic priest. They say it still looks like bread, looks like wine, smells like bread, smells like wine, tastes like bread, tastes like wine, but it's not. It is the literal blood of Christ and His body. Now they base this Largely off of John chapter 6. So if you can look over there real quickly. John chapter 6. This is the discourse where Jesus says that he is the bread of life. So wonderful statements here. Verse 48 of John chapter 6. I am the bread of life. Verse 51. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. And now here's where it gets interesting. If anyone eats of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread also which I shall give for the life of the world is my flesh. Well, if that's not clear enough, he just wants to make sure people really understand what he's saying. Verse 53, Jesus therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood 
has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. This is difficult, to say the least. So difficult, verse 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. No surprise there. Was he speaking literally? Catholic Church says yes. And through the centuries, they would kill you if you said differently. So this was obviously a huge deal and is a huge deal to the Catholic Church today. Many people literally lost their lives because they refused to say it was literal. They said it was symbolic. One person famously said, Jesus also said, I am the door. Do we take that as being literal? And nonetheless, she was killed because of her refusal to say it was literal. So how would we handle this? Well, first of all, the Lord's Supper, I'm, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, the, the Lord's Supper had not yet been even instituted when Jesus said this in John chapter 6. Okay, that's later. The Lord's Supper had not even been instituted yet. So this, whatever Jesus is talking about here, he is not talking about the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is never mentioned in this passage. Secondly, he says in verse 60, Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, Does this cause you to stumble? What then? If you should see, the, and behold, the Son of Man ascending where He was before. Now here's the key, verse 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh, which He just talked about eating, the flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. In other words, I'm speaking to you spiritually, not literally. If you were to eat my flesh, it would profit you nothing. That is not what I'm talking about. So in the very passage here, Jesus explains he is speaking symbolically, spiritually, and he is not speaking literally. So the Catholics believe in, in what is called transubstantiation. That's the word they use. Trans means change, substance, the actual substance changes into the literal flesh and, and blood of Christ. Why should we reject this? The most serious reason transubstantiation should be rejected it is that it is viewed by the Roman Catholic Church as a re-sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our sins. Now, I did not grow up Catholic. And I've heard that statement more than once over the years. And I was not long ago having um, a conversation with a former Catholic lived a Catholic until he came to Christ, and he said he has never heard that the Catholic Church believes they are re-crucifying Christ. Well, I've only been in one or two Masses, and I've heard them say that. But that doesn't mean anything. Here's a quote from, the, again, the Catholic Catechism. The Eucharist is thus a sacrifice because it represents the sacrifice of the cross. 
The sacrifice of Christ and the sacrifice of the Holy Eucharist are one single sacrifice. Not two different things, one single sacrifice. And then it goes on, since in this divine sacrifice, which is celebrated in the Mass, the same Christ who offered himself once in a bloody manner on the altar of the cross is contained and is offered in an unbloody manner, this sacrifice is truly propitiatory. So they're saying two things. Jesus is being sacrificed at every Catholic Mass. They are re-crucifying Christ. And secondly, that's how you get your sins paid for by observing Mass. That's a pretty big stuff. Christ does not need to be re-sacrificed. Hebrews is very clear. Jesus did not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Same thing in 1 Peter chapter 3, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Christ once for all death on the cross was sufficient to atone for all of our sins. Therefore, Christ's sacrifice does not need to be reoffered. This is heretical. Christ needs to die again. And that the Catholic Mass is re-crucifying Him. So it is wrong on so many levels. The Bible does not say that's what's taking place. There is no expectation of that. And, and in the Catholic Mass, they're going way beyond what Jesus meant in saying this is Christ literally being crucified again. Martin Luther couldn't even accept it. And so he backed off a little bit in the Protestant Reformation. And he says, can't accept transubstantiation. And I understand Martin Luther was an ordained Roman Catholic priest. He was one who supposedly had the power to miraculously see the, the wine and bread turned into the literal blood and flesh of Christ. He said, no, can't accept that. So what Martin Luther came up with is what call, is called consubstantiation, meaning Christ is with the substance. And so this view is literally, the, the quote is, Jesus is with, in, and under the bread and wine, but is not literally the bread and wine. So he's just taken one short step to the side of transubstantiation because they believe that Christ is still bodily, physically, literally present when you take communion. But he's just not changing the substance of it. But spiritually, you are eating and drinking Christ. You're just not doing it literally. Now, we're not Lutheran and we're not Catholic. And so it shouldn't surprise you that this church does not hold to either of those two views. What we do hold to is what we call the memorial view. And this is based on what Jesus said in Luke twenty-two nineteen, And he says, And having taken some bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given for you, and here's the key, do this in remembrance of me. He didn't say, do this because it is me. He said, do this in remembrance of me. So this is where we get the, the idea of a memorial or a remembrance. We are remembering Christ's 
sacrifice, we are, we are memorializing that when we take communion, or what we call the Lord's Supper. Paul repeats the same thing twice in 1 Corinthians 11. So we're saying then that the Lord's Supper means nothing because it is only a symbol. Perish the thought. That is not what we believe. Symbols are highly significant to God. Very, very, very significant to God. The Passover was one elaborate symbol. Huge significance to God and to the people of Israel. Mess it up, and boy, they're in big trouble. The Sabbath is in many ways a symbol of Christ who is to come. Break the Sabbath, you die. The rock in the wilderness, no way Moses could have known that that was a symbol of Christ. We don't find that out until we get to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. That was a few thousand years after Moses. But Moses messed up. God said the first time, Speak, I mean, strike the rock and water will come out. And water came out. The second time they were without water, God said, speak to the rock and water will come out. Moses was mad. And he did much more than speak. He got out his staff and started beating the rock. And God in his grace and his mercy let water come out. But he said to Moses, you messed up. And it wasn't just that it was an act of disobedience. He messed up God's picture of Christ dying for us. Because the rock was a picture of Christ and Christ is struck one time, not repeatedly, contrary to the Catholic Mass. And so when Moses struck the rock a second time, God said, you messed up my picture of salvation and I take these pictures seriously. You cannot enter into the promised land. We know that in the Bible that leprosy is, is, a, is a picture of sin. And the healing of leprosy is a picture of salvation. That is consistent in Scripture. This is why when Matthew, the gospel written to the Jews, remember when we were looking at Matthew, Matthew records the first miracle that Jesus performed as being the miracle of healing a leper. And then when the leper is healed, Jesus sends him to the priest. Because there's an entire chapter in Leviticus devoted to what the priest is to do when a leper is healed. Problem is, no leper had ever been healed. And so since the time that Moses wrote that chapter, and then the hundreds and thousands of years, 2,000 years, 1,500 years that passed since that time, 2,000 years, the priests began to believe that if anyone ever got healed of leprosy, it would be the Messiah that did it. That's why Jesus said, go show yourself to the priest. And the priest, in turn, believed. But back in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings, there's this guy named Naaman who has leprosy. He goes to Israel. He's healed. After he's healed, he tries to pay for his healing. And the prophet says, no, you can't give money for what you've done. Your healing, remember, leprosy is a picture of sin. The healing of leprosy is a picture of salvation. Your salvation is the free gift of God. You can't pay for it, and there's nothing you can do to, to pay God back for what he has done. It is simply the free gift of God. And so he was not allowed to pay for it. And after he turned away and went, the prophet's servant was a little chagrined. And he goes, that guy was offering a lot of money. 
So he ran after him, lied to him, and said, my master just had two guys show up, and they need some clothes, they need some money. Just wonder if you can give them something. And so then the prophet says, I knew what you did. God told me. And the leprosy of Naaman will now be on you for the rest of your life. Why? Because he messed up God's picture of salvation. So as Protestants, and especially as Evangelical Free Church Protestants, we believe that the Lord's Supper is a remembrance. It is a memorial. We believe that baptism is a picture. It is not a reality. But do not for a minute think that that means we don't think that they are highly significant. We don't believe that we are literally eating or spiritually eating of Christ when we observe communion. But we believe that this is a big deal to Jesus. And so though it is a memorial, it is not something to be trivial or trite about when we observe communion. How often is it to be observed? We're not told in the Bible. Um, It appears that every time the church was gathered, they had the Lord's Supper. And there are many Protestant churches that still do that today. Um, Why we don't, I'm not sure why the E-Free Church doesn't do it every week. We would have the freedom to. There's nothing in our statutes that says we can't do it every week. I think the the history behind of why our tradition is to do it once a month is because we didn't want to uh, make it become rote and something that we just take for granted because we're doing it every week, because we do view it as being so significant. But because we're creatures of habit, whether it's every week or once a month, we tend to become creatures of habit, and we do things by rote, which we should not. Who is authorized to administer the ordinances? Who can can perform a baptism? Who can serve communion? Scripture doesn't say. For certain, we don't have to be ordained, even though these are ordinances. There's nothing in Scripture about a clergy, an ordained class within the church that are the only ones that can do this. I have seen many fathers baptize their children, and I think it is a wonderful thing. And there have been many occasions when when the believers are together, whether a Bible study or just a small gathering of believers, and they want to remember the Lord through the Lord's Supper. There is nothing that would restrict that from happening. By the way, though, if you're Catholic, you know that what I've just said is not acceptable. Because the only one in the Catholic Church that can administer the Lord's Supper is an ordained Catholic priest. No one else. That is not said in Scripture. It's just not said. Now, it is our tradition here at Bernie Bible Church that communion and baptism um, would be officiated by a man. There's nothing in the Bible, honestly, that says that that has to be the case. And so that hurts me to say that because it's so much part of my culture, my evangelical culture, that it be a man only. But... There is nothing in Scripture that says that it has to be a man. The reason that we have said men only is only because it seems to best represent what we are memorializing. That it is a man who baptized us with the Holy Spirit. 
It is a man who gave himself for us. This seems to be why the Bible says male leadership in the church. Because it's the, it is the, the head of the church is not the male leadership. It is Jesus Christ who is a man. And so the qualifications of an elder are simply to be men who demonstrate the character of Christ. And so we say that they should have the character of Christ and the pattern of the church from the very beginning has always been male leadership because this clearly is what the scripture affirms. It's not because we think that women aren't able or, um, or anything like that. It's just simply this is what, when it comes to male leadership, this is what scripture clearly affirms. Our students, some of them over the break, were in San Antonio, as I mentioned last week, visiting some of the um, cults and, and all. And um, they also visited a synagogue and discovered a woman rabbi. And so, and all the leadership of that synagogue are women. And I just wanted to, if, you know, as I heard that, I thought, when did she stop reading her Bible? Um, you can't get that. I mean, really, you cannot handle God's word honestly and come to the conclusion that that would be permissible, in my estimation. So where are we? To be observed by the church um, during the present age, so by the church, meaning that baptism and the Lord's Supper are for believers. We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper should be observed by those who are saved. During the present age, we don't know, and probably... I think we can say with confidence that in the future age, it's talking about the eternal state, not the millennium, but the eternal state, there will be absolutely no need for baptism because nobody's going to be getting saved. Everybody will be saved. I don't know whether we'll be observing the Lord's Supper in the eternal state. Don't know. So I'm not going to speculate. But I do know there will be no need for baptism. And so that's why our church doctrinal statement says at this time. Because Jesus says, when it comes to the Lord's Supper, do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me until I come again. And so during this present age. Goodness, there's still so much. My wife told me, just maybe you want to split this up into two Sundays. So, okay, now, what I've said so far. Um, and again, going back to the doctrinal statement, they are, however, not to be regarded as means of salvation. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not means of grace. They are not necessary for salvation. They are important, but they do not contribute to salvation. So that much is what I've already stated. And there's about four or five more pages of notes here. Now, I want to transition a little bit to talking about baptism and then um, wrap it up. In some church traditions, you are not saved until you are baptized. In some church traditions, you are saved at the moment you are baptized. And that would be Lutheran and Catholic, even though they're not consistent with when salvation actually occurs. So what we're talking about here is 
if, if you believe that you are not saved until you have been baptized with water, then we call that baptismal regeneration. Not many Protestants believe that, but some do. The Church of Christ believes in baptismal regeneration. Those that believe in baptismal and again, I'm stealing this from um, gotquestions.org, they typically break down regeneration into a four-step process or formula. They believe that a person must believe, repent, confess, and be baptized in order to be saved. Some would add a fifth. Now, the problem with this viewpoint is that there are lots of biblical passages that clearly and explicitly declare that faith is the only requirement to be saved. Many passages. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. No mention of baptism. Whoever believes will have eternal life. Acts 16.30, the Philippian jailer says, what must I do to be saved? Prime opportunity for Paul to say, believe and be baptized. But he didn't. He said, believe and be saved. And here's something that occurred to me because in Bible school we're just getting started with 1 Corinthians. Paul says in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, God did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. So if baptism is essential to being saved, isn't it a bit surprising that Paul said, God did not send me to baptize? But he sent me to preach the gospel. We are saved by faith alone in Christ alone, not by works. And baptism is a work. Now there are a number of passages, not a lot, um, one, two, three, four, five passages that are used to support baptismal regeneration. We don't have time. Okay, let me look at the one that is maybe most um, instrumental, most often used. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Acts 2, 38. Peter said, verse 38, Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that seems pretty clear on the face of it. Repent, be baptized, and you will receive the forgiveness of sins and the Holy Spirit. Now here's the deal. Everything depends on the little preposition for. Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. That little three-letter word for is from a three-letter Greek word, eis, E-I-S. It can be translated for, as it is here. It can also be translated as a result of or because of. And third, it can be translated with regard to. So if you take the second meaning here, 
um, because of or as a result of, it would be repent and let each of you be, bapt- um, be baptized in the name of Jesus because of your forgiveness of sins. As a, re- as, a recons- as a result of you having your sins forgiven. That is the best way to take it, especially when we realize that there are three other places in the New Testament where baptism and the Greek word ice are used together. And in all three, it can only make sense as because of. Matthew 3.11, baptize you with water for repentance. It's not baptize you with water so that you might get repentant, but it's baptize you with water because you are repentant. And then the same in Romans 6.3, which I read this morning, baptize into his death. It's not baptized so that we would be brought into his death, but baptized because you have already been brought into his death. And then 1 Corinthians 10.2, baptize into Moses. Same thing. It's not baptized so that you can get into Moses, but baptized because you are in Moses. And so that's the normal way to take this. But here's also an important thing to note. It's the observing the you in this verse is sometimes singular and sometimes plural. So literally, it should read, you, plural, repent for the forgiveness of your sins, plural, and each one of you, singular, be baptized. This is where Texan is better than English. In Texan, we would say, y'all repent for the forgiveness of y'all's sins and let each one of you be baptized. So that, that helps us to see that baptism is an individual matter that's completely separate from what he's saying about forgiveness. Repent, all of you, for the forgiveness, all of you, of your sins. And once you've done that, each one of you ought to get baptized. But, it has, but there's nothing there that says that you have to be baptized in order to be forgiven. I like this illustration. Just because we can't, there's, there's the fallacy, this, this writer says, the fallacy of, of um, negative inference. And that being the idea that because the positive statement is true, that everything on the negative is true. Put it this way. It would be a true statement to say, all who live in Texas and believe in Jesus are saved. Amen? Does that mean you have to live in Texas to be saved? No. But all believing Texans are saved. But that doesn't mean that no one else can be saved. So in this sense, all who, are, who believe in Jesus and are baptized are saved. Correct? But that doesn't mean that people who have not been baptized aren't saved. That's going too far with the statement. There is no place in Scripture that says you must be baptized or you will go to hell. That verse is missing from the Bible. It's just not there. So, it, and again, I could work through these other passages, but there's, there's just simply not enough time. The same Peter who here says, be baptized, is the same one who says in 1 Peter chapter 3, 
He will also say, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. But then he says, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what saves us? Not water baptism. Not the removal of dirt from the body by water. But what saves us is appealing to God. Appealing to God for a good conscience, which is Peter's way of just saying, Jesus saved me. That's what saves us. The Bible is clear that we are saved by faith alone. No Old Testament believer was ever baptized in order to be saved. Abraham was saved. He was not baptized. Baptism is a testimony of our faith and a public declaration that we believe in Jesus Christ. The Bible never says that if one is not baptized, then he is not saved. If baptism were required for salvation, then no one could be saved without another person present. Someone must be there to do the baptizing before he can be saved. So this basically says that you can't be saved unless somebody baptizes you. So what do you do with the soldier in the trench who cries out to God, save me? And then he's killed. Throughout the Bible that we see that a point of faith a, we, throughout the Bible, we see that at the point of faith, a believer possesses all the promises and blessings of salvation. When one believes, he has eternal life, and he does not come under judgment, and he has passed from death into life, John 5, 24. Our doctrinal statement goes on and says, we believe that immersion is the mode of baptism which we consider to be best demonstrate we're not saying immersion. Immersion is going under the water, coming out again is not the only way. We're just saying it's the best way of portraying the spiritual reality. Because the spiritual reality is, is that, and this is why I read from Romans 6, is that we have been crucified with Christ, buried with Christ, raised again to the newness of life. So the most beautiful way to portray that is by getting dunked under the water and coming out again. But from that point on, the church has been all over the map. Some people dunk backward. Some churches dump forward. That would be a little difficult. Some people dunk once. Some people dunk three times. Some people dunk only in the name of Jesus. Others dunk in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Some churches, they sprinkle. Presbyterian church sprinkles. Some churches, they pour I'm not sure which ones, but that's something that some churches do. They don't do either do. They kind of split the baby, and they pour over you. But if we understand that water baptism is a symbol, it is not conferring grace, but it is a public statement of what has already occurred, then immersion is the best way to do it. But it doesn't, there's nothing in the Bible that says it has to be by immersion, and if it's not immersion, it's not valid. The point is, is that it is a public testimony of our faith in Christ. And as long as that is taking place, then the mode doesn't matter. We believe that baptism takes place at the moment of salvation. Spiritually, we are baptized by Christ with the Holy Spirit at the moment that we believe in Him. And water baptism is simply a response to that. Some churches would say, and this is mainly the Mennonite churches, we have a lot of Mennonite students with us, that no person should observe 
the Lord's Supper until first they have been baptized with water. And they're very strict about that. Now, I understand where they're coming from because they're saying the spiritual reality is that you have to be baptized in Christ with the Holy Spirit. That means being saved before you can have communion with God, before you can fellowship with God. So the spiritual order of events is first born again that we might enter into fellowship with God. So baptism, communion. That's the way it is. But if we believe that water baptism and the Lord's Supper are symbols of the spiritual reality, I see no reason to keep a believer who has not been water baptized from taking of the communion. Because he's already saved. And the communion is simply a picture of the fellowship he already has with Christ. So there's no reason. So, we, so all we would do, the most we would say in this church when it comes to the Lord's Supper is, this is for the believer. That, we're not going to ask you if you've been baptized with water or not. That should not, in my estimation, this church's estimation, keep a person from, being, um, from taking the Lord's Supper. Immersion would seem to preclude infant baptism. Most of us do not dunk our babies underwater. You could go to jail if you do that. There is no record of infant baptism in the Bible. You can only get to infant baptism by saying when Paul said to the Philippian jailer, you and your household. And you have to infer that household included babies. There's no record in Scripture of any baby, any infant being baptized. There is no command in Scripture to baptize infants. Baptism is never said to be a parallel of circumcision in the Old Testament. It is never called a sign of the New Covenant. Everyone in the Bible who is baptized is baptized after believing in Jesus Christ. Now, all of this I hope you understand, you sense as I'm going through this, it's more than just academic. It's good for us to know what we believe and why we believe it. But as I've been trying to stress all through this message, just because we believe these are symbols, do not for a moment think we don't think these are important. They are vitally important. When we come together for the Lord's Supper, it should be with great soberness of heart and mind with humble hearts, that we are remembering with all of our being Jesus and what he has done for us. We never want to be trite, trivial with the Lord's Supper. It is dear to the heart of God, and it should be precious to our hearts as well. The same with baptism. We don't believe that it's our business to tell you, you need to get baptized. But, it has been the tradition of the church that as soon as a person believed, he got baptized. We don't observe the Lord's Supper every time we're gathered, and we typically don't baptize believers the moment that they are saved. We could, we just don't. I remember hearing Tony Evans in a seminary class one time. Um, he was talking at this Oak Hills Bible Church had not been in existence very long, and he told us that he had, 
I think he said of the 600 people that were there, he had personally led to Christ 400 of them. Pretty impressive. It was a class on evangelism. Wow. Well, one of the students asked the question, what are you doing? Are you just nailing people to the wall? And Tony stopped and he thought for a minute. He goes, yeah, that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm just nailing people to the wall and, and telling them, make a decision. And then the follow-up question, were well, you saying every one of those people that made a decision is saved? And he goes, absolutely not. And he goes, that's why in our church we wait a year before we baptize anybody. Because we want to make sure they're really saved. Baptism is for the believer. That's all we want to know before we baptize anybody. That's why when we do a baptism, we always have the person that's going to get baptized just give a very brief testimony of their faith. Just say, I have placed my faith in Jesus Christ and Christ alone for salvation. My trust is in Him alone. That's all we're looking for somebody to say. So that we know they're not getting baptized as a way to get salvation or as a way to get grace. But it's simply a public testimony of what is already true in their lives. I heard the bell. <laughs> we don't have a regular time on our calendar, maybe we should, to, uh, for, to schedule baptisms. So I'm closing this out with an offer. If after hearing everything I've said today about the Lord's Supper and baptism, if the Lord is moving on your heart to be baptized and you've never been baptized as a believer, we are available for that. You can talk to me, any of the elders here in the church, and we will schedule that. We have a baptism at His Hill every year at the very last week of Bible school. We go down and try to find a hole in the river. There aren't too many holes anymore. It's pretty dry. And we have a wonderful time baptizing any of the students that, that would like to be baptized. There have been times we've incorporated Bernie Bible Church in that, but that's usually a little difficult because it's usually in the morning that we do that. But there have been times when we've just had a church picnic, church fellowship up at His Hill, and we've used our pool. And so if we have you know, enough interest, um, one way or another, we will accommodate your desire to be baptized, and it is something that we believe that every Christian should do. It's just not our mandate as a church to tell you when and where and all that. And we believe that's something you should respond to before the Lord, and you're not just responding to somebody telling you what you ought to do. We want you to be responsive to the Spirit of God. We believe that baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances to be observed by the church during the present age, they are, however, not to be regarded as means of salvation. We believe immersion is the mode of baptism which we consider best to demonstrate what occurs spiritually at the moment of salvation. And this ordinance is to be administered only after salvation is experienced. And I'll pray. Lord, thank you again for your gracious and abundant, sufficient work that you have accomplished in each of us that when we placed our faith in Christ, we were blessed with every blessing in the heavenly places, that you lavished upon us your grace, and you have given us all of Jesus. We know, therefore, that baptism in the Lord's Supper could never add anything to what you've already done. It is a finished work. And yet, God, these are beautiful memorials 
remembrances, portrayals of that finished work. We thank you, God, that we have this privilege to remember on a regular basis and to celebrate Christ and his work on our behalf. That we've been crucified with him, buried and raised, and that we participate in fellowship with him all through his blood shed on our behalf. Thank you, God, for how you have so richly blessed us in Jesus. In his name, amen.